Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of the Panjway Podcast. As always, you can find our episodes on all podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook for the video episodes. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice, and if you enjoy what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice five-star review. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to the Panjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. So remember on all three platforms, that's the Panjway podcast. P-A-N-J-W-A-I podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Like they gave him like, well, they, they, uh, I think it kind of got erased because such a big outrage came of it. Like all the military pages were sharing it like USA, what the fuck, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but if that hadn't happened, if the publicity hadn't been pushed on it, he would have had a a permanently filed Gomar because we gave, uh, we gave article 15. Yeah. Yeah. For breaking quarantine. Yeah. Oh, well, that's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so, we're sitting here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're sitting here with Major Chris Persons, oh, who uh, had the privilege to be our platoon leader in Afghanistan when we deployed to Panjway. So, uh, Chris, thanks for coming on to the Panjway podcast. We really appreciate you, man. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's great to be on here and, and reconnect with you guys. Having a blast. Yeah, for sure. So usually the way we kick it off is we just let you kind of give the the quick elevator speech version of your military career, which in your case has been rather illustrious. <laughs> so you know, tell us about you know uh, the general trajectory of how that worked out for you. Yeah, so I, I think uh, pretty traditional. I'm a state school grad, joined the ROTC program, uh, branched infantry after completing my initial training at Fort Benning School of the Boys, uh, <laughs> showed up to 3rd ID to uh, 2nd Brigade. And that's kind of where our fate kind of met. Chuck Armstrong, the battalion commander 164, walked me down to, uh, to Bayonet Company, where I met Garrett Turley, uh, waking up from a uh, after coming off of a night fire range. And then <clears> uh, <throat> said, hey, you're in 1st Platoon, Scrapper Platoon, and your platoon sergeant is James Ott. And that's kind of where uh, it started from my PL time. Um, did platoon leader time and third ID with the XO time, uh, with the deployment with you guys. And then, uh, went off to the career course, did some, some drinking and some schooling. I think that's what career courses are for. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, had the privilege to, to go to 101st, uh, took two commands there, uh, with first brigade, Bastogne brigade, uh, did a short deployment afterwards for a joint task force. And then I'm where I am now, which is at Fort Hood. As a as a baby major working in the uh, the newly elected Third Security Forces Assistance Brigade, uh, and it's nice. just kind of uh, the the elevator speech of the last ten years of uh, first persons <laughs> in the army. Could you uh, tell tell us a little bit about the SFAB because it's a it's a relatively new unit. Um, I've been, a lot of people that might be listening that were in Panjway way back uh, might be interested to know 
you know what that is and sure. what how it evolved and became what it is. You don't have to give me the whole history, just you know. No, 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 you're good. So the the short story on that is uh, General Milley, who was who is now the Joint Chief, but at the time was the, uh, the head for the Army, said, "Hey, the units, brigade, combat teams are it's taking too much for them to keep going to Afghanistan and Iraq, and so what we need to do is stand up these smaller units uh, that are NCO and officer heavy." And give them the mission of going over with habitual relationships in small teams and working with uh, partner forces uh, everywhere from near peer to our partners like the Canadians or UK, and all the way down to to crazy states like Afghanistan or Africa, uh, and allow the brigade combat teams to focus on readiness and uh, actually winning our nation's wars, and then allowing us, the SFAP teams, to work us on building professional armies and building partner force. So that's we have five of them now. Uh, the third SVAB is the one I'm in. We stood up about three years ago and we're still marching along with, uh, we've done Afghanistan deployments, South Africa, de- South America deployments and Africa deployments is kind of where we've been used lately. I feel like as a, as a lower, like enlisted, that'd be a pretty good gig to land in. Or is it it's mostly just kind of like higher ranks? E- you have to be E5, don't you, to, to go to SVAB? True. Uh, some of our medics were specialists, but, uh, it is a sweet gig if yeah. you are, tired of doing live fire after live fire in ctc rotation it's a broadening gig <laughs> yeah uh, so you get to come hang out with a 12-man team of every warfighting function um, you get to do unique training events you know we wear civilian clothes you go to glock academy uh, you cool. work with university of texas on negotiations so it really expands i would say the enlisted side of the house the things that they probably wouldn't be exposed to yeah. uh, unless they mm-hmm. went to a special ops community and that seems what that was kind of like the model for it was like they like well, we're gonna take the size of an ODA yeah, and yeah. take the skill set of a psyops or a civil affairs team and then give them the the advising mission um, so that the 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 ODAs can focus back on the unconventional side of of, uh, of their mission set. I mean, a, advising unique... is still part of their mission, but yeah. you know uh, those guys weren't super happy just running. Uh, you know, uh-huh. ranges for A and A day after day after day, like the Somali army. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, right. It's still being developed, so it's a it's a healthy yeah. balance. Of you're right. We took what we liked from the ODA community, with understanding that these are conventional. We're a conventional force, right? right? We're not yeah. right. anything special, and so that's that's the hard part. Is drowning is kind of making guys realize like you're not a green beret, right. you're not mm-hmm. CAG. Um, but you are going to be given a little bit of special skill sets to help you succeed. So and that, that's probably what it really came down to. It's like, oh my gosh, we can't control. We don't have any control over the the SF community. SF so let's create a unit anyway. that we can control. <laughs> yeah, man, man, that's probably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the the mission the S, the SFAB brings, you know, is is pretty unique. Um, and as a result of that kind of unique mission and taking over some of that load from the special forces teams in Afghanistan, you got to go back to Afghanistan. Specifically, you got to go back to Panjway. I did. Yeah. So I've, I've, you know, I've been in Afghanistan twice now and I've never been able to get outside of Kandahar. <laughs> uh, but it was a, an interesting experience to be able to, I think it was eight by time. Let's see, I left in 2021. So, you know, a nine years difference mm. by the time I got there. And some things were, were exactly the same and other things were completely different. So it was a very unique experience. And, you know, at, since you were there and you, you were a major and you had a little bit more, insight what did what did you learn about uh first about panjway in general just like the, the the family structures and the political environment and then we wanted to ask you kind of what the what the truth was on the ground to to the extent that you can share yeah yeah sure so 
um, you know, from being a lieutenant there, we understood the highlights of Panjwaits, the birthplace of the Taliban. Uh, we knew that it was, you know, very religious and tribal in the area. And then coming back, removed now, uh, and seeing the little top leadership part of it, what I found out is that Panjway was a, a pretty good indicator of the ground truth that was going on in Afghanistan. Um, because the elders uh, within Panjway and really southern, southeastern, and western Afgan- of Kandahar uh, were very tied to what is the government doing versus what are the guys who are controlling us with the Taliban are actually doing. And so the Muhammad family, Haji Muhammad, uh, who's the village elder and his sons, uh, still have a tight grasp of Panjway. So um, they are the district governor, the district police chief, uh, and also just the main uh, owners of all major businesses within Panjway. Uh, and you can see that ripple effect uh, as you go toward Kandahar City, um, as they make future political decisions in other districts around Panjway. You know, Haji Muhammad's name is constantly brought up. Mm. Is Haji Muhammad, is he aligned with the Taliban? Uh, I mean, staying in line is, is, yes, like, are are there dealings with the Taliban? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, could he pick up the phone and call the right guys? Correct. Yeah. But but they have a, a weird way of looking at, you know, that he's also very well connected with the Karsai family uh, and the people up in Kabul because it's his livelihood. Right. Um, so balancing being a district governor, representing uh, the government, and then also a tribal leader. Uh, representing his people and, and what's best interest for them is is something that he balances very carefully. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things about Afghanistan that's just so unique, especially it's almost like the antithesis to the U.S. And we've talked about it a little bit uh, over the podcast about the tribal differences and the tensions and these like these groups that have power in certain areas. And it makes for a really complex situation to try and deal with. So I'd imagine that like from the SVAP perspective, like what was the the big challenge in terms of like yeah. the, the things, the hurdles that you had to surmount while you were there to try and progress the, not just the U.S. mission, but the, also the, like, the Afghan government mission. No, that's true. And, and you just said it kind of hit on a nail there is that we're not also, we're talking about nine to 10 years of different policy changing. Um, so you're always curious about what did the last guy do versus what I'm going to do. Mm. But for us, the, the big thing was, the SFAB had to help build a professional army and so, and really security force for Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We're getting to a point where we know that we're leaving soon. Uh, our numbers are constantly getting smaller. Um, but if you've seen, there's not a huge shift uh, in the fight of the army. They're still a terrain-based army on checkpoints um, and living off of the local people, and that's not the intent. So mm-hmm. uh, what we had to balance was how do we sell to district uh, and province leadership that we're going to maintain safety and security within your your area of operations, but also how do we get this army into a structure that allows them to come back to garrison, train, get paid, get trained again, and then actually go out and fight uh, the Taliban, but not necessarily be stagnant. Hmm. And so there was a balance between local police, national police, and army uh, operations, and and that's where it really took the governors to come help. Uh, and the local people, because you know they have to understand that you're not going to have a checkpoint every five feet on a road. Right. You're, you're going to have to rely on your your local police and national police. So that was kind of hard for us. Yeah. So in April in 2020, Panjway was still under the the peace, yeah. um, and that peace supposedly had resulted from a, a villager uprising in 2014. 
where the villagers just stood up, grabbed their AKs, and kicked the Taliban out. And I think everybody on that has ever served in, in Panjoy knows that that's probably not what actually happened. Yeah. Um, and obviously you can't go into a lot of details, but can you give us an idea of what that, what the situation on the ground was like, how peaceful was it? Was the Taliban still moving through the area? Did they have refuge there? Um, or was it like, you know, were the villagers still standing outside the village with AKs saying, no, you can't come in. No, no. So, uh, when we came in Afghanistan, uh, so you gotta remember 2020, we had just gone through a presidential election. Uh, Kandahar had just received a new governor. Uh, Kandahar's provincial uh, police chief, the the famous Razik, uh, was just assassinated. So there's a lot of a lot of crazy things going on in Kandahar at the time. And for Panjway, because that was the first question selfishly I asked when I came in, I was like, "Hey, sure, I, absolutely. I, I, I fought here. I want to know what it's like." Um, and they're like, no, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Panjway. Panjway is a safe location. And that was the first indicator that I, I'm going to dig deeper into this. Yeah. And so yeah. what we found out was um, the Afghan army and the national police, so Afghan National Security Forces, had very strict guidelines on if you stay in this building, this location, you will not be harmed and just stay here and let us continue with our business. And by us, I mean the Taliban. Oh, so, right. um the village elders had worked out a deal where you can travel through, you can come down these roads because we won't have checkpoints. Uh, and as long as you don't cause problems down here for us, then all will be fine, which is ironically what it was like uh, at first when we first went to Afghanistan. When we were talking to these village elders, they're like, no, like, we have a great peace deal. They can fight north of the Argandab and they bed down here. And, I, and what we saw was as you start to creep up on that deal and, and make changes to that, uh, it starts to irritate the Taliban and fighting begins. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, because November of last year, so not too long after you left, is when whatever that deal was must have fallen apart. Um, I don't know if that was related to the Doha, Doha agreement or if it was just like, like you said, somebody screwed up and they were like, okay, well, we don't feel bound by this anymore. Yeah, I, I think it was probably a combination of both. So, one being, um, Kabul realizes that they cannot remain, the government can't just remain in Kabul or in centrally located Kandahar and control things. And so what ended up happening was we started expanding uh, the government's role outside of district centers. And, and that's probably what kind of broke the deal was having a more forceful, unified government role mm-hmm. in these districts that don't want that. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole narrative behind the peace deal always seemed suspicious to me. Um, and when I was there in when I was there in seventeen, and I flew over Sparwangar, and I flew over Masamgar and Zangabad and District Center, and I flew the whole route of Route Hyena doing a route recon. I was like, "There's no checkpoints. There's no police. There, Sparwangar has like a Humvee on it, and Masamgar has yeah. like two Humvees on it. Like the presence of and like Afghan forces was nothing. It's like there's no yeah. way they're they're managing to keep the Taliban out if they have nobody here." No. And I, they're always in my mind, it's like, ah, there's something behind the scenes. So, Yeah, Panjway is actually controlled by Kandak, so their version of a battalion. Um, second battalion's based out of Masamgar, uh, and they kept a couple of the U.S. cops uh, as their location. Yeah. But um, it's a telling sign when the corps co- or the brigade commander, a one-star general, uh, says his safest area is Panjway, yet he will never drive from Kandahar to Panjway. So I, that was a good yeah. indicator that. 
there's some backdoor deals there. Sure. Right. Sure. So you, so you actually got to fly above Penjoy, check it out, kind of see it hands-on, right, when you were there? Correct, yeah. So we, we flew a couple of recon missions uh, out east and then out west, uh, and then got a pretty good site survey uh, that the Corps of Engineers has done right before I showed up of actually what of Sparrowangar looked like. And it was a, it was a sad day to see some of the locations that, you know, we spent a lot of time in and that people built or, you know, enforced, reinforced, just turned into, looked like graffiti. You know, they, they stripped it of all the wires. And like you just said, they had a small company size element that was based out of Sparrowangar now. Yeah. And I, I suspect they probably plussed it up since I was there. Um, because I mean, I, I, I could send you the, the photos, but like I, on the whole base, I didn't see a single person. I only saw like two Humvees on the entire base yeah. of Sparrowangar. Of course, you know, when we were there, the Afghans had what, 20, like 10, 15, at least Humvees. Yep. You know, it would be very easy to know that they had people there, but there was nothing. And Mazamgar was like a complete ghost town. Yeah. So I'm guessing... They started to ramp it up, maybe ahead of the election or something. I don't know. So, but, yeah, they, they definitely added some more troops. And then um, Spermagar is owned by the Afghan National Army Territorial Force, which is a um, National Guard version of of their local soldiers that can work there. And, right. and what we saw with Spermagar is that if uh, if First Brigade was taking care of the ANATF and giving them money, giving them training, you'd see a lot of soldiers at Spermagar. When things were not doing so well and they mm. would stop paying them because they ran out of money, or they just didn't have the vehicles and trucks to give them or weapons to give them, then those those ATF soldiers would just go back to their house and they leave the front gate locked and say, I hope no one gets in here. Hmm. Um, the majority of the forces for Panjway uh, were, were tailored a little bit closer down to the horn. So spots like Zangabag, Mushan, uh, were, were the larger their their rifle companies were located at. Well, it's interesting that they would choose to kind of give up Sparwangar. Because uh, of the, they literally have the high ground, right? But yeah. if you're not as well equipped and you're you're not as well, I guess staffed for lack of a better way of putting it, then Sparrowangar could actually be kind of potentially dangerous to hold because you're anytime you're up on that position, you're out walking around, somebody could lob rounds at you pretty easily. There's yeah. no walls to, you know, there yeah. are walls to hide behind. But and you also got to look at where you know the majority of their forces were by the district center, or right, so the, the Afghan. Government's worried about district centers, bazaars, um, in large population locations. So as you get close to the Massamgar, that's where it's at. Plus, I mean, could you, if you imagine, I mean, if, if you had a substantial Taliban force in the area and you just had like a company on Spurwangar, they could isolate Spurwangar like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. they may not take it, but they don't need to. They can shut down Route Brown and <laughs> you're done, you know. It's all you true. escape to the south if you're lucky. But um, unfortunately, or I'm not sure exactly how it played out. Probably they just left and Taliban walked in. There probably wasn't much of a fight for Sparwangar, but uh, it's yeah. it's in Taliban control now. But And that was one unique thing of, uh, so during the peace deal, the, you know, the peace deal is really against U.S. soldiers and Afghan counterparts and so, and the Taliban. But what we saw was the checkpoints would be given plenty of warning. So they would, they would send a representative and say, hey, in 48 hours, either be gone or we're going to attack this checkpoint. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And the soldiers were smart enough to say like, hey, I, we're not going to get resources, so we're going to leave. Mm -hmm. Or they'd stay and, and get attacked. So I, I do agree with you. The, I, you know, I'm not really sure if it, how it fell, but uh, it probably was not a surprise attack at night. Yeah. No, no, they probably walked to the front gate and 
Yeah. Right. High fived and threw the keys when they left. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently they have stripped it bare. They've even taken the tea barriers away. Like they've just taken everything <laughs> yeah. that they can and I'm sure mined it, you know, extensively. But they're not, according to the local sources, which I'll obviously, you know, grain of salt, but they're not using Sparwagar as a base. It's just they, they seized Sitting it. They there. took everything they wanted from it and they're operating out of a mosque in the area. That's where the actual Taliban HQ is. Which is smart because if they took Sperlingar, we just bomb the shit out of it. You know, yeah, it's a that's true. Big easy target. And, and the goal for the Taliban is not necessarily it's it's who can hold the most terrain when the peace deals are complete, right? Yes. And that's mm-hmm. yeah. That's why we were the Afghan army was so hesitant to pull off and retrain and refit because they knew that as soon as the peace deal was signed, if you owned a certain part of the district or if you owned a certain building. In, in this peace deal assigned, then, then you're going to own it through that. But if mm-hmm. you didn't, and you ceded that ground to the Taliban, then that's just something for them to hold on to. Right. That's unfortunately what's happening all across districts, uh, probably in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, and, and we, we talked a little bit in the pre-interview, the, the May 1st deadline, um, which this will air before May 1st, so <laughs> this won't be, uh, <laughs> won't be retroactive, but uh, that May 1st deadline for U.S. forces beyond Afghanistan probably is going to be the trigger point as to what happens in the rest of the country. and. Um, all the, the reporting coming out of the country is essentially that the Taliban's just taking everything in districts where they can and just yeah. waiting, yeah. you know, yeah. waiting to take the big cities, waiting to take the, uh, the district centers and stuff like that. So it's going to be an interesting, yeah. it's going to be an interesting, uh, it's going to be it's an interesting, yeah, it's going to be an interesting fighting season for sure. So we, we know what Pantry looks like now, but. Uh, as we said, man, you are our platoon leader for First Platoon Bravo Company going into uh, all that. So, like, talk us through what that process was like because you were there for a good while. Like, you were there well before we got our orders and things like that. So, you know, what was it like for you as a PL to to get that information, to find out the particularities of what we were expecting to get into? Uh, we always joke about our NTC come to Jesus moment, you know, where we yeah. all got set down with Sarnot and yeah. and told how it was going to be. So, you know, what did that look like for you as a, as a young lieutenant? Yeah, it's it's you know, even when I tell us go over a story in my head or I tell other people, it was a it was a unique time for us. So, um, as we've talked about in this podcast before, you know, you're coming to third ID, which has just come off of uh, Iraq deployments. We show up and we're getting the brand new tanks in Bradley's BAE civilians are down here teaching us everything from what it looks like to going through a table 12. And so our mindset uh, was toward that. I remember we were doing table six through table 12, uh, change of commands between Captain Turley and, and Captain Kitching. And then these rumors, as Nince kind of talked about, started coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember uh, Brian Kitching was, was like, hey, like, there's no way that we're going to get sent to Afghanistan. Like, we're not even close to the glide path. And then right before we went to our platoon live fires, we were told that we're being taken off of a red cycle tasking of working gate guard over Christmas break block leave. Mm-hmm. And that was the first indicator that, okay, something to take us off of that cycle so short uh, to December was a, a good indicator. And then yeah. I remember when they brought us in and said, no, you're going to Afghanistan and you're going to augment uh, a striker unit. And that's where just the training glide path went crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, because one, for the infantry companies, yeah, it's a mindset shift, but you got to remember we have two tank companies that had to have a mission. Uh, yeah. I'm talking about tankers that had never, no fault of their own, but never wore nods and walked in the woods before. 
Right. And so uh, I remember that, if you guys remember that, that FTX, so where we walked back the 20 plus miles, well, that whole FTX was just a way for infantry companies to to take those tank platoons that we were spreading across the two companies and, and get them integrated to, you're going to have to walk and learn a whole new battle drill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was very unique for us because being a lieutenant and being paired with someone like starting first class hot, uh, and really having to work through what's the right training glide path to do in a very condensed period of time to at least get to Afghanistan and not immediately fall apart. So it was, yeah. it was crazy. And I've always wondered about the decision to, to, to grab an armor battalion. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. the only thing I can think of is that, you know, they already knew that second brigade and fourth brigade were, were set for brigade level deployments yeah. um, going to Afghanistan later the next year. So they were like, well, we can't pull units from the light infantry brigade because they're already on the patch chart. Like we can't do that. So they, I, I don't know how we, we ended up on it. I'm sure there's, you know, probably no, literally no rhyme or reason to it at all because it's, you know, the United States military. But just odd that they would send tankers yes, into a dismounted fight, um, which I guess technically they didn't. The original plan was that it was just supposed to be the two infantry companies going to one, two, three, and then maybe just the tank companies were going to pick up that Kandahar mission, but... Somewhere along the way, they decided to integrate a couple of those tank platoons and platoons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at how many hurdles the army had to jump through, right? So one, crazy. They had an NTC that wasn't planned for our battalion to come to, and that's why mm-hmm. when we showed up, we you know we didn't know what our mission was going to be for the uh, the last part of that of the exercise. And then two, I think it just shows how during the mission analysis of Third Striker, they realized that they really needed extra forces to help augment Panjway. Yeah. Um, and and it, the army said, hey, we got one battalion and third ID that's ready to go. And, and they're like, we need them that bad that we're going to take them. So I, yeah. I think it just underlines how bad the fight was in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I know I'm suspecting, um, and we talked to some guys from 125, I'm sure we'll get the answer, that the area that 123 held was probably previously held by two battalions. Yeah. So as part of like the incremental drawdown, they gave it to one battalion, but one battalion didn't have enough companies to hold six cops. So you take two two companies from one six four to to Kenjikak and and Sparwangar to uh, yeah. kind of run that deal. And to think that in the span of less than four months, we completed yeah. live fires. We mm-hmm. turned in our brand new equipment back to the army. Uh, and then ramped up for an Afghanistan deployment, which even the date shifted further left than we thought. We lost a nine mil. We changed battalion footprints. <laughs> like you add yeah. all that up and you're yeah. like, man, this is, how are these guys excited to get out of there? And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a whirlwind experience that I definitely use lessons learned from that as I continue in my, my army career. So when we, uh, when we actually got to Sparwangar and Panjway and we started patrolling and stuff like that, like. We've kind of gone ad nauseum about, you know, the first impressions of Camp Panjway. It was flat. You know, there's no mountains, yeah. everything like that. But as a lieutenant, kind of what were your first impressions? But also, when did it really sink into you, like, with the fight and what was going to be happening there and what it's going to look like? Yeah, the first impressions were was was very unique. So I, I actually flew in Advon. Uh, I think all the officers did. And I think I brought Nince with me. You did. I can't yeah. remember exactly who I brought. 
Yeah, um, it was Nims. To go settle in. Yeah, and you know, we're on top of Sparrow and Guard getting the the brief from from the from the RIP team and I'm telling a firefight opened up at sunset on Route Brown in front of us the North ECP. And that was day one on the ground. And I remember just thinking, holy crap, like this is real now. Yeah. Um, so now fast forward to uh, to being told that you're going to walk in a file, which I know you guys have hit plenty of time on here, yeah. but you know, never learned that in my Army career. I've been told that's the wrong answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Given a, a mind-detecting uh, device to somebody that barely knows how to use it because I learned the same time he did uh, mm-hmm. in a class outside. And then... <laughs> Uh, walking into villages that no one had gone to since the Canadians. So, you know, nothing wrong with the unit we ripped with. But if you remember, they were very clear that we came in fast during the winter. We did presence patrols, but we really didn't establish anything. Right. Yeah. So, uh, they took over from another unit in their, in their, in their brigade. Yeah. And so trying to figure out, you know, how we're going to, how we're going to start this, uh, was very unique for me because not only did we have to worry about the mission set of uh, of helping our Afghan forces lead the way, but also of, you know, like we got to figure out where we're at right now and how are these people going to deal with us. So mm-hmm. it was uh, an experience to, to to live with. I mean, to that end, what as we went started to go into those villages early on in the deployment, and this is way before our first firefight. You know, we were we were in the jot before we had our first firefight. Yeah, um, into these villages. That we had that no one had been to for three years. What was the what was the response you were getting from the locals as you had those shures and those KLEs? Yeah, I think hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, at first, I was you know pretty excited because uh, you know you had you kind of had this this built up mindset that you're you know you're coming in as an American and these people are going to love you and things are going to be great and and they started you know holding some shures with us, uh, but they were very hesitant. Uh, to say other than like hi, yep, mm-hmm. we're happy you're here, uh, and then they they would say the classic like oh we you know we want some water or we would love to have a school eventually, uh, but there was not the typical anger of hey you're the twelfth platoon leader I've talked to and you've always promised me X Y or Z right, uh, mm-hmm. and so uh, initial impressions was like hey like this is this might be okay like these guys are are not yelling at me. And I think as we progressed and saw that, I think they were like, please, please don't cause problems for us. Because uh, right. the yeah. more you come here, the more that they're going to target us of what are we talking to you about became very clear. Yeah. yeah. So when, you know, because you were privy to a lot of the Shuras uh, while we were out Portland security. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that I think about and I kind of wonder and I bounce off of you here is, those elders, especially like the builders elders and all the people that came to those, they were they were kind of forced into a performative politics in a way, and that they they were almost like rote memorization. Oh, we want a well and we want to build a school because that was what was expected of them, uh, not only from our end but probably from the Taliban too, because the Taliban had ears in there and they were listening to what these yeah. guys were saying. And if one of them came forward, and was like, "Oh, Taliban commander lives down the street," then he would have been dead that night. Yeah. So, well, was that a frustration for you? Did you start to figure that out as you got there, or was oh, it, it was a huge frustration? Just... Yeah, yeah, it was a frustration in the sense of you know I'm being sent to this village because intelligence reports said X, Y, or Z, and then you show up uh, and there's I've never seen the Taliban. They've been gone for ten years. Uh, there's no IEDs. Things are great. No, we don't need any right. police. We have our own local police. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And those were lies, right? And we we knew it. Um, 
because the person who's taking pop shots at us as we come up to that village more than likely lived in that village. Yeah. <laughs> um, He's in the sure with and us. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. and so it became very, very frustrating at times because, you know, repeat that weekly um, and, and the, the party line is always the same. Like, no, the, mm-hmm. the Taliban are not here. That poppy is for myself uh, and that everything's great. And the complete opposite was the case, as we found out. Now, yeah. how did that compare to like the, the same kind of conversations that you would have in 2020? You know, yeah. I mean, you, you, obviously you're not you're not speaking at the village level, but you're, yep. you're having discussions with you know local mayors and you know leaders and politicians. Um, was it was it literally just the same, or was it maybe just a little bit more uh, contrived? Yeah, so it, it's some similarities, right? So the the complaints were more though. Uh, toward ANSAF forces of ANSAF forces are hindering me to be able to live my life because right. they're either stealing money from me, eating all my food, um, or they're the ones that are causing the Taliban to come into the village. Right. That was the hard one is trying to express that there's a checkpoint here for a reason. Um, and it's not the opposite where the Taliban are purposely coming because of that checkpoints there. So, uh, some things never change in Afghanistan and, Local people not truly picking a side is something that uh that I think will remain for for years to come. Well, I mean, and to to some extent, you can't blame them. You don't want to pick the losing no. side. And exactly. to them, they're yeah. like, "Well, I mean, the Americans are stronger, but the Americans are going to leave, and yeah. then we're going to be left with the shadow government becoming the real government." And you know, they have a long memory, so I, I don't really blame them for just yeah. trying to kind of play both sides, uh, but. At the same time, you know, it was, it's hard not to be a little bit upset about them or the, the, uh, the dual nature that you would run into where like, oh yeah, we, we love you guys. We love the Americans. And as soon as we leave, you know, the interpreter's icon is like, yeah, they're, they're telling the Taliban, you, you left out the South. You guys better move yeah. fast. And it's like, fuck. Yeah. Pantry is a great location where, you know, you can see that happen. So, uh, Canadians are there. Canadian government says we've taken enough casualties. We're going to have you out on this date. Uh, and the U S had to quickly backfill that. Uh, but each time there's a gap, you know, the, the local people see that it's almost like the Kurds in Iraq, not to, you know, venture off Afghanistan, right. but it's like, there's this repetitive nature of, mm. we promise you, we bring everything. Uh, but they've seen both sides of that coin that, you know, the, the opposite is, is worse for them. Um, until there's real change, and there just hasn't been real change. That's a, that's actually another good question. So, as you were in these Kaleys and Shures in 2012, were you ever compared to the Canadians, or like compared to previous units? Like, well, they did this force, or they did that force. Why aren't you doing this force? That kind of thing. A few times. So, I would say that uh, Boyce and I did get some good laughs uh, at some trying to pull fast ones over. Of sure, hey, like you, you promised me a brand new well. I was like, hey, man, I've never been here before, so that wasn't me. Um, <laughs> but um, I will say that the, as we progressed after our first month and started to have more of a routine, um, you could tell that the village elders were were starting to like the fact that the A&A was coming out more than just two people. So, hmm. you know, we were at the front of that transition. If you go to Afghanistan the last five years, if, if you had more than 10 soldiers, U S soldiers on the ground, and there wasn't at least a company size of Afghans, like you're doing it wrong. Right. You're supposed to be Afghan led. 
And mm. that was just starting to happen when we got there. And and we kind of, I think we're ahead of the curve where we'd go out there with a platoon size plus element of, mm-hmm. of Afghan Sometimes. counterparts. And, and yeah, exactly. uh, Sometimes we and went out so, with two ALP teenagers. And- true. <laughs> yeah. uh, depending on what we needed. But for the planned yeah. patrols where we could get the most people, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was reassuring in our village elders saw that like, Hey, okay. Like, they're not just coming here because they're here for six months. They're actually bringing the local commander in platoons, and they're they were building relationships at the same time when we were there. So as you, um, you know, as you began to get some experience and time there, one of the things we talked about for us on the ground is like just enlisted dudes. We weren't privy to a lot of that stuff, and we didn't yeah. really care about a lot of it, to be honest. Like because we were just there trying to survive and get to the next day. So, but we were we were more or less involved in a tactical fight. So you had to kind of balance these two different fights you know the the promising wells but at the same time yeah. on the way out of town you're getting hit by pkms so as you know when things really begin to heat up and we get uh, we begin to take a lot of contact you know what was that like for you to kind of try and shift between those two mindsets of of walking into an ambush versus walking into a shura you know that was that, you know, that was a good question or it's a really good question so it was tough right so for on one hand um I think Ott and I both knew that we always had to sell the why to the platoon, and we tried to. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing we could have done is, you know, keep going back to these bad areas, but not explain why. So on one hand, um, I think we planned for the worst case scenario every time. So, you know, we thought no matter where we were going, it wasn't going to be a friendly encounter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it was, it was on the, it was like, okay, that, that went well. That's good. Um, the second thing too, it, it was really coordinating with second and third platoon, uh, was a lot of my job because one platoon could really ruin the town um, because we rotated every day who went where. And mm-hmm. so making sure that second and third were on the same talking points as us so that when I did go in there, it wasn't, hey, McGrath pissed this guy off <laughs> and now he hates you, <laughs> right, um, yeah. which was a you know, 50, 50 chance that would have happened. <laughs> yeah. And so Cause we uh, all, we all look the same to them. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we, and we all represent the same thing. So, mm-hmm. um, for me, I, I would just say, I looked at it that bottom line up front, I'm at the time, I didn't think I was going anywhere. So it's like for the next nine months, like we're going to have to have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want that to be as positive for both of us as could be. And mm-hmm. so I would realistically say, these are things we can do. Um, but also understand that I'm going to come here on a routine basis. And so please do not make it painful for us. Mm. Um, because like you said, the soldiers aren't privy to what we're talking about and they're just going to take it out. They're going to be mad if we keep coming here and getting shot at. Mm-hmm. So when you, when we began to shift though into this weird balance of you guys operating almost a coin fight, but not really, <laughs> I mean, yeah, in yeah. reality, like a lot of our mission set especially like the bigger operations stuff like that, which is active combat operations against the Taliban. Yeah. And so, um, as you progress as a Lieutenant and you were there at those, uh, those first few months, like what were you seeing going on with your guys? Like, were you seeing guys really start to have a hard time? Was it, uh, guys that had a hard time, you know, keeping up that fight and that kind of thing. And how'd you, how'd you work with that while you were the PL? Yeah, there was definitely a, uh, when we looked in house at a mind mindset shift, you could see it. So, like, I think most of us had very little combat experience coming in. There's a few that did. Um, yeah, you know, we talked about that before. But uh, you know, I think Brian Kitchen talked about it. We 
we were hungry to get into a firefight. I remember we would come back and be like, man, we missed it. Like the threat tipper was out there. We missed it. Yeah. Um, and then after that first firefight, uh, it, I remember a couple of people were making jokes, but in looking back, it probably wasn't a joke. There was someone that's like, Hey man, I'm ready to go to mayor cell now. <laughs> you like, <laughs> <laughs> go fill gas generators after that. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's lighthearted, but yeah. I think, uh, as we progressed and I think the toll of, of being, you know, looking for mines, uh, you could see it in people's eyes. It's like, okay, like, yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, one squad's going out a day, maybe two if we're doing a big mission. But it was like, what what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. Uh, because every step I take, there's some risk with it. And that's why I go back to Ott and I, every night when we came out of that meeting, tried to sell, hey, this is what we're getting out of this. And this is how it's improving things because right. you got to give guys some purpose if you're going to go risk their life every day. Well, and I always appreciated that you guys kind of, yeah. You cut through the bullshit like, hey, man, we're we're not here to win hearts and minds. <laughs> no. You know, like yeah. we, you really focused in on that, you know, spectacular attacks. We're, yeah. we're, here, we're here to prevent spectacular attacks in Kandahar City, um, yeah. which is good because for us, it made more sense if we were like, hey, we're going out there so we can get little fights with the Taliban so that the Taliban can't push all the way to Kandahar. We, and for me personally, brand new PSC, I was like, that's fine. That, seemed, that, that seems reasonable. Yeah. We'll, we'll go out and we'll get in fights with the Taliban. Cause not for me as a as a pissed off E four, but you know, <laughs> no. yeah. there was nothing we could do to change you. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, yeah. But I mean, the the idea of like, hey, we're here to fight them. We're not we're not yeah. here to to build roads and build wells. Like, yeah. there's we'd love to be able to, but this the area is just not safe enough to do it. Yeah. Um, and even like be like, hey, you know, the IED threat scared me way worse than getting into fights with the Taliban. So. Yeah, I was down so, with getting into fights with the Taliban, uh, as long yeah. as we could control it. Which and we saw that with, uh, you know, a good example would be how we treated when we went out and did checkpoints for bats and hide enrollment. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of times where we sat on the road just waiting for someone to come by, and I remember the mindset at first was some of these guys would get off these motorcycles and just be pissed off, and we'd be yeah. like, "Why are you guys pissed? Like we're here to help you." Yeah. Uh, and I think. It might have been Jay. I can't remember who our interpreter was, but there was this one guy, and he explained. He's like, this guy came from Zangabad, and he's going to Bazari Panjway. And on the way there, he has been stopped seven times. Yeah. <laughs> and each of those seven times, he's been enrolled in bats. He's been roughed up by somebody, an ANA soldier, you know, to make sure he doesn't have anything. Um, and I think that that was a good mindset of like, okay, like, I'm still going to enroll you, but I'm not going to be a complete jerk to you. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that helped out as well in the platoon of, like you just said, like the whole reason we're here is to prevent a massive attack. Uh, and the quicker we get these guys enrolled, the more, you know, we can keep going out and hunting for these guys. And I think that kind of helped. I'll say though, it makes me, I'm a lot less likely to sympathize with old boy on the motorcycle when all he had to do was go on hyena. So why wasn't he driving down the main road from no, Zangabad to the Czar? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe he was avoiding that road because there's lots of open spaces where a hellfire can hit him. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nothing, to, nothing to do with his like 12 cell phones he has in his pocket. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Or that you're completely <laughs> circumnavigating the horn. Yeah. 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 Which we saw. Um, I mean, we saw people that like, you knew. You knew when you saw oh, him. Yeah. Like, I know who you are. I know what yeah. you're doing here. I know why I you're... Just think. Yeah, you can just, just, just think. Yeah. Yeah. You can see it. Yeah. You can see it. You can 
just the way they're dressed. I mean, too, like I, you know, I used to think it was a joke when they said, "Hey, the the hardened fighters are dressed in all black. They wear yeah. black eyeliner and they look mean." Well, guess what? They it's that's true. all accurate. Yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah. we saw them, we saw them out there. Yeah, uh, it's like man, yeah. that's crazy. The really committed Taliban or the guys who come from Pakistan. Yeah, you know, like they look different. Once, like the locals once, look just a little bit different than the folks coming from Pakistan. You know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we saw it during the you know when poppy fields were starting to get uh, to get harvested. We we saw them. They came to check on the crops, uh, mm-hmm. and it made sense. So yeah, I even remember the day that oh, we talked with Tom Evans' first firefight. You guys were talking about. I remember a dude sticking his head out of the grape hut. He was mean looking, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. The uh, the yeah. Taliban commander undoubtedly who drove through our formation on that day where we went and linked up with SF in the job. Mean looking, you yeah. know. They're yeah. just mean looking people. Yep. These hardened, like I said, the hardened ones were. So you you were you were pretty new, as well. I mean, you, you were. I think you were Coffee's or Luke's age when you deployed. This was your first yeah. deployment, so you got to earn your CIB on this deployment as well. Um, yeah, I know for the enlisted guys, you know, especially those that just gone through basic training, it's all we can think of: CIB, CIB, CIB. We've got to get our CIB. It's the only thing we gave a shit about. Did you did you kind of succumb to that a little bit? Were you kind of like I got to get my CIB so I can no, definitely. like yeah yeah definitely. So I I mean I even just coming to third ID I was terrified that I had missed the fight. So right um, Afghanistan we thought was going to draw down eventually. I'm in a heavy unit, not going to go to Iraq. The last Iraq deployment, guys did not earn CIBs as the norm. Um, and so, and, and also I had spent, you know, four years in college, uh, you know, working toward this as, Hey, I want to be an infantryman. I want to be a combat infantryman. Yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely went in there thinking, Hey, I, I, I'm with the best company commander I could ever be with the guys, uh, you know, Ranger Regiment stud. He talks like president Obama and everybody <laughs> follows him to yeah. wherever he goes. Um, and so that, that was something really big for me. And then, you know, the funny story about my CIB is, uh, when I got the paperwork for my CIB, you know, it was written as a cab. Oh, uh, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> so, uh, first sergeant column oh, sends man. me an email and says, here's your award. And I was like, ha ha, send me the right one. Uh, yeah. I already left by the time they did the paperwork. Uh, and he's like, well, aren't you an armor officer? And I was like, Oh God, just cause I don't have a ranger tab. You're going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I actually, I, I, I went to my boss, the S one and I was, just heat it. And I was like, yeah. fix this now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I earned my CIB, gave it to me. Um, and I'm sure that yeah, was quite something, a process. Something... It probably took months for them to fix that. No. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's a funny story though, is first Sergeant column wrote me back immediately like, Hey, I'm very sorry, sir. I know this means a lot to you. Uh, and, and it got fixed and it's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just like adding insult there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <you> an armor <laughs> officer. Yeah. Oh uh, man, that's like, no. Um, yeah, yeah and it still man. means a lot to me today. Yeah. Like I, uh, yeah, man. you know, I, I cherish uh, my CIB. It's it's something that uh, I understand was paid with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Um, and there's a lot of memories that come with it. Um, and especially in today's army, like we were talking about earlier, it's just you look around and. There's less and less uh, wreaths around people's uh, badges around there. Yeah, and it's yeah, we we tried to kind of dial in on that in episode two, just like ultimately, end of the day, it's the same award. Yeah. Like it's it's the same as a cap. Yeah. But but we we attach extra significance to it. Like infantrymen attach more significance mm-hmm. to it than uh, uh, anybody else does to getting a cap. 
Like yeah. a lot of people are like, yeah, I really want to get my cab, but they're a lot like, oh, I don't know. You know, you don't generally see a whole lot of people like attach that kind of significant to a cab, but infantrymen, they yeah. all do. It's just like this, this thing. And, uh, you know, I remember being excited in my first firefight knowing like I wasn't as excited as Perez was while he's like screaming that he's going to get a CIB <laughs> yeah, yeah, while he's railing on the saw. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it crossed my mind once like I was down, I had cover. I was like, yeah. Oh yeah, this is I got it. it. This is it. This yeah. is it. And then you tried to kill me. So you said yeah, yeah. you said you wanted <laughs> to you said you wanted to defend your actions that day. So I'd like to give yes. you an opportunity to ex- yeah. explain why you wanted to run battle drill one. So alpha let's just minefield. remember. Let's just remember. Here we are uh, in the wide open, taking we accurate were. machine gun fire, we right? Yeah. Uh, and being like six hundred meters back with the way that we worked, uh, the only thing I could do was, hey, we we got to move. Uh, and I had trained you guys so well that you didn't even second guess my orders nope. as no, I, I told ready. you to jump was, into that canal. Myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking back, yeah, having the guy who has a law strapped to the back of his, uh, his ruck. Uh, sorry. I can't remember if we grabbed which one we took, if we took the old Canadian stuff or not. It was gigantic. Um, it was definitely Yeah. Looking yeah. back, yeah, that was a horrible decision. Uh, but it also made a good story for who jumped in and saved you. I can't remember. Uh, we're not this, gonna no no okay no, he doesn't get he no, doesn't get you're right I, I don't want to admit okay. to it <laughs> okay yeah I was I think the way we spun it you know because we're all about spinning good news narratives right. mm-hmm. uh, we we spun it to his heroic actions yes he did <laughs> pay no attention to that yeah, yeah he he did get an award for that uh, which you know what this unnamed individual I do appreciate that because it was helpful I think I still would have survived either way. You would yeah. be fine. I, Somebody been, would I, would, so I probably would have swam down the river until like right through go. the gunfight and be like, oh, hi. Probably would have. Yeah, you could have got. Yeah. Could have got I think water, it was even crazier. could have got a waterborne yeah, like combat. Just like as I'm floating downstream. Just like. Yeah. Just kidding. That, you know, actually that probably would have looked a lot better. Looked really cool. Yeah. The way it actually did look like by the time we got up there. And I'm like, holy crap. Like that. We we dodged a pretty big bullet on that one. Yeah. Yeah, man. That, that, you know, we had the, the back wall, so if we look south of us, we couldn't move over. It was at least 10 foot. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a canal to the north of us, mm-hmm. one bridge that was probably mined. Uh, we didn't know at the time. And then mm-hmm. here we are doing a map check and just happened to get the the surprise on yeah. on what, you know, three to four element as they bounded back toward the uh, to that old village. So Yeah, uh, I mean, they, 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 set up, they had a setup in a good spot. We had, yeah. Where we had they, no cover, they, they had tons to of it, us. and they were... On the other side yeah. of a, a very deep, very fast moving. Good number of you know, them. Yeah. Yeah. It was a well-organized uh, ambush. It was actually, uh, it was one of those, I, I've said it before on here, but, and Chris, you can speak to this too. It was one of those firefights that actually are inexperienced. Might have weighed to our favor on that one. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't realize how thick and bushy it was. Because that was one of the worst ones of the deployment, funnily yeah. enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that one was unique also because we had two things going against us. One uh, we took the ANA commander with us. So that was one of the first missions um, where he actually decided to come out with all of his guys. And mm-hmm. we should have known something was up because he brought his weapon with him. And we found out later that if if he didn't think, if he thought we were going to be safe, he would go out without his M16. Mm-hmm. Um, and here he is with his M16, mm-hmm. uh, hanging out in the back a little bit. And then the second thing too was, if you remember... Um, we had left pretty early that morning. This was one of those first missions where, because we knew we were going for the furthest west we have been since mm-hmm. this time, that we left like right when the sun was coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right when we made that left-hand turn out of the ECP, 
there was a taxi cab that immediately took off. Um, and there's only one way we could have gone, right? So what we knew, though, we knew, right, okay, this isn't good. Uh, this taxi cab with two guys just took off down the route we're going. They're they're telling everybody. Mm. And, and that looks like what happened. Yeah. And I remember on that one, we, we were seeing, like, all the stuff that they were telling, like, the the, the kites and the doves yep. and the icon chatter. No and, people. Yeah. No yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah, the whole and way. It's funny. We talked about the importance of a CIB and how we felt as infantrymen. When we got back... Uh, so we got picked up by trucks by, I think it was like third platoon. We got back. I remember Sergeant Ott and I were putting our gear off and he looked over and he was like, I'm going to get promoted now. Like, I just <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, you're going to get it now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, but definitely a memory. Yeah. yeah. And luckily, luckily other than you swallowing some Afghan water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think as the lieutenant... As the PL, you actually you went out a lot, and, yeah. Because you not because in the earlier chunk of the deployment, uh, before our numbers got so thin that we had to go out as one, <laughs> as one unit essentially, but you would go with first and second, or I guess second and third squad both. Yeah. And so, you know, you got to see uh, both sides of the of your platoons coin behaviors, mm-hmm. soldiers, but also you got it in all the fights, man. So like, what was it like <laughs> for you to just have to buckle down and be out there pretty much every day. Yeah, I, I very quickly learned the joke of why they say PL's, you know, weapon is the radio. Um, because yeah. I think the first couple of firefights, like Chris Persons had my M4, probably wasn't looking at it accurately, but I was on the line trying to shoot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, as I progressed, I very quickly learned that the battle drill was, you know, take contact, take a knee, voice runs up to me. And we're calling troops in contact, trying to get assets on station. And thank God for Kiowas, and uh, they were right around the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way because uh, you know the worst fear for me would have been if I was not out, uh, which you know later down the road we kind of experienced when I wasn't in the platoon anymore. But um, having an element go out that you trained and that you worked with, and, and not be able to be out there when they need you was kind of a big thing for me. But. Definitely, uh, definitely got my steps in. <laughs> Wish we had yeah. a uh, one of those fit, watches that could track that. And see how far, yeah, yeah. Fitbit back yeah. then. We I mean, that's the thing. It. Like second to Sarnot, yourself, and like Boyce, Salvador, mm-hmm. like those the yeah. four people in the platoon. Kohler, I guess, when he came down too, like those are the people who saw the most combat of the entire platoon. Like if you were there for four months, but you went out both squads, you saw yeah. more combat than one squad did in nine. Yeah. So it's just it's that would be a crazy dynamic, and yeah, you know, personally. When I look back on it, I wish I'd have had the gumption and the huevos to go out on every single patrol and just like <laughs> hump the goose or whatever. But yeah. I also realized realistically, my mindset at the time, I would never have done that. No, you know? no <laughs> way. Yeah, and that's I think that's where the difference in responsibilities at Echelon are important. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, for the guys that are carrying the mine hound, carrying the valon, or humping humping the equipment. Um, having that half a day because it's never a full day off because right. we were getting called up for QRF or something, or you're doing um, driving runs to Zangabad or exactly, something. yeah. So, uh, but I think that the the mental idea of just having a second to reflect and, and maybe not necessarily be on back on that patrol was probably beneficial for how long you guys stayed into that kinetic environment. Yeah, you know, you bought some time back. Yeah. from it. It's true. Um, mm, and then, uh, and point. then, but it's a flip side for me. For me, it was a way to not. You know, I, I was constantly thinking, okay, like when I get done with this mission, I'm going to go give a debrief, get more information and then plan for the next mission. 
And so what it allowed me to do is to kind of disconnect from the craziness that was always going on yeah. mm-hmm. and really just focus on how can I be the best, you know, tactical leader for the platoon and for the company for what they needed done. Um, cause I, I, by the time I put my head down, you know, I was waking up right, you know, getting ready to go again. So that makes uh, sense. I think yeah. both, both side of the coins was beneficial. And I think the roles that you take within the formation really affect your, your approach to going out. So when yeah. you're a PL, the, the platoon sergeant, medic, uh, RTO, you're, you're, you're somewhat isolated from the, from the IED threat for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, wherever the gunfight is, you know, it, it's either at the front or the back. Um, and like I said before, we didn't really get too bent out of shape about gunfights. We, yeah, you know, obviously if they were close, it was scary for a second, but for the most part, um, I think me personally, if they said, Hey, you're going out every day, but you're only going to carry the mind hound every three days. I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay, great. That's fine. I'm not up. Mm-hmm. I'm not up at that position. Yeah. Cause sure. like you said, man, that was, that was the majority of my, of my stress. Uh, but to Luke's point, if they said, or, or you can just not go out at all. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, like it was just, it's just interesting how the, the stresses shift. And, yeah. but then even, even at that, you know, then Jay steps on an ID, eight people back in the formation and everyone's like, well, no one's safe. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, no boys, boys used to yell at me all the time for that. Cause I, so I was notorious for, I could not sit still. Uh, even in a firefight, like I was going to move as much as possible. And it, it was a conscious effort. You know, you watch football games and, you know, they always have that guy grabbing the coach as he gets too far off the sideline. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Boyce was doing that to me because, you know, every time you, every time you're taking a step outside of that marked route, mm. um, as we found out, uh, you know, you're not always safe. So uh, yeah, I, the dynamics of each role, just being in an infantry platoon, uh, was very unique and mm. uh, how people carried it. Yeah. So, as a, as an officer, young lieutenant till now, a major, you know, I think what are, you know, what was your primary takeaway from your time in Panjway? What's the thing that sticks out with you the most? And what's a memory from that deployment that will, that's, will always hang with you, always stick with you? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I do constantly reflect from from Panjway uh as I continue each each job in the army but uh as an officer I I think it it really came down to just watching young men at the time we were all guys uh watching young soldiers do phenomenal things back to back and I know that that's kind of a common theme but it didn't matter that we were in Afghanistan didn't matter why we were in Afghanistan the fact that um, a group of soldiers who knew that every time they stepped outside of an ECP, uh, we're going to have targets on their back, but continuously charged forward, helped their fellow brothers, um, but still did it with, you know, a positive at- attitude toward their partner force, not always blaming them for why are you not doing this for your own country, uh, was something truly remarkable. Uh, and I try to take that forward with me in whatever job I'm at is like, Hey, at the very least, if we all just work towards something, um, and we do it to our best ability, like we're going to make a difference. And then for a memory that really sticks up, you know, I, I, I try, I'm, I'm a positive person. So I try to think of positive things. Um, but a big win was, do you guys remember when we, uh, I can't remember which squad went out, but we went to go get that high value target that was in Bizarre Panjoy. Do you guys remember that one? I do. 
it was when we were like running around with uh, like signals intelligence guys trying to find yeah. Us. yeah. Yep. So it's actually funny because it's a it's like a success story, but also you're like, how do we succeed at that? So first platoon was notorious for getting hey you missions. Like you weren't mm-hmm. we weren't on the docket to go somewhere, but we wanted something done. Yeah, and so that kind of happened here. It's late in the day. It wasn't a morning patrol. And we were told, hey, we, we got this guy. It's in Bazari Panjway. Uh, he's hidden on some stuff that we have on him. We want you guys to go get him. And so we literally do a quick brief, get in a truck, get in trucks and go. And as we get in Bazari Panjway, causing a scene, right? You can't take a mat V with a mine roller in the middle of a bazaar and not cause a scene. Right. <laughs> we stop, we get out, and they call us off. They're like, hey, we had the wrong information. He's not here. You're good to go. Come back. And so we're like, oh, man. So we get back in our trucks. We go all the way back to the cop. I dismount, go to talk to the CO about some jokes or something about how crazy this is. And they call us back on. And I was like, there's no way this guy will still be there. Mm-hmm. We had just caused this massive scene. Yeah. Uh, and we actually do. We, we go all the way back. Uh, and he's sitting in a, in a police checkpoint with a fake police badge. And, <laughs> and we capture him. And he's, he's very accurate about who he is. Uh, had a really cool... Had a really cool name that I probably can't say on here, but uh, <laughs> had a sweet call sign for him. And then, um, you know, I, I look back uh, recently when I was in Afghanistan going through some files, and he actually spent two years in prison for being an IED facilitator. Hmm. Uh, and to me, that was unique yeah. because uh, we practically did a raid as a conventional third ID force in Afghanistan during the middle of the day. Like, that was pretty cool. <laughs> hmm. Well, and, and your final mission was a very yeah. unconventional, was, I mean, you know, at, at certain times in certain wars, maybe it wasn't unconventional. But at that time, for them, yeah. for what we did, we basically QRF'd for an air assault to go grab whoever that guy was. I don't know who he was. Yeah. At the same compound that we had our first yeah. firefight. And that was your last mission. So, like, it you was. got to sandwich your experience in Panjway <laughs> around. To have a bookend right there. Yeah, it was a really nice yeah. bookend. It really was. Well, what do you remember yeah. about that yeah. mission? Because um, other than us running out the wrong direction, nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but who were Zangabad watching on the raid camera? I thought we looked awesome when we did. I know, right? Um, <laughs> the funny thing about that one is once Kohler, you know, I we were at the end of the rip. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we actually had already done our final rip mission, and I'm finishing up property with Kohler. Uh, I'm pretty salty because I'm I'm leaving. I know I've been dragging this on. I'm about to get in a truck and leave. And again, it's a hey you mission. It yeah. was, uh, yeah. you know, Brian Kitchen comes in says, hey, you know, we need to go pretty soon. Battalions working the aircraft. It's going to be a Chinook and a Blackhawk, and they're going to land there. You know, if if we don't do anything right, the one thing we must do is ensure that you take a knee, Chris, when you get off the back of this bird, and make sure we're going the right way. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, well, you gotta be kidding me. We're not going to screw this up. We're we're scrapper platoon. All is good. Yeah. And uh, I remember we. This is one of those missions where we grabbed the bare minimum of A and A. I think we grabbed two guys. Yeah. And we're like, "You're our partnered force. Get on here." Um, and we flew to that compound. the The Blackhawk was post. So the way it was supposed to work out was the Chinook was actually supposed to land where we actually got our first firefight hmm. uh, across the water. Yep. Uh, and the Blackhawk was supposed to go forward. The Chinook landed cockpit toward the door of the compound in the wrong area. Yeah. And we ran off of that thing like Bad I don't even know like what. Like just like like yeah. we're in a movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we ran the wrong that. way. 
I, I <laughs> fell luckily, over. <laughs> yeah, I think, but it looked good though because we you know we had we had done it the right way. Um, I remember I took a knee like Brian told me to, and I remember him tapping me on the shoulder, just shaking his head, and I was like, I got it, I got it, and uh, we did like a really long U turn. <laughs> yeah, but um, it was really neat though because we again we captured uh, we captured three guys on that target. Uh, they had some stuff that we wanted. Uh, probably the first time they were ever on a Chinook because we had to walk to that HLZ to p- drop them off. Mm-hmm. But it was a it was a success story in which was positive to leave Kohler with that. Yeah. Um, because I think that summed up first platoon right. It was like on the fly we could get something and we'll accomplish it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. we did, and it was luckily yeah. everybody came back safe from that one. Yeah, that was yeah. a very successful mission for us because we didn't even take contact, and the only the only yeah. uh, variation we had was the Chinook landed further to the south because yeah. there was a. I think we got Icom Chatter that they were trying to push an RPG team in there, yeah. if my memory yeah. serves me correctly. Yeah. So we humped it maybe a click, not even that. And I'm talking we that compound was pretty big too. So yeah. I don't I mean, it was just it was probably a, maybe twenty of us on the ground. We had uh yeah. we had cleared it, conducted SSE, got confirmation of what we needed to, and then and then we had to walk a little bit further to big kit picked up. And we did all that. Uh and I remember looking at Cole and I was like all right, man, like, this is it. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I can't teach this, you know, but this is what you're going to walk into. And, and he did, I know he did a phenomenal job. And I think that was a good way for him to, to start of drinking from a fire hose instead of just going on some easy Zegabad mm-hmm. runs. Yeah. I have a very distinctive personal memory from that mission, um, which was the oldest of our prisoners. The, he was an old guy, like gray beard yeah. and stuff. And so I got, I got put in charge of him. And I just remember, you know, we had them zip cuffed and stuff like that. And, and to clarify for our listeners, like these were Taliban. They, were, they weren't, you oh, know, yeah, they yeah. were bad guys. Yeah. And uh, I grabbed the guy by the arm, but I could almost wrap my hand <laughs> completely around his bicep. Yeah. And, you know, at the time I didn't think that much about it. He was skinnier than I expected because they wear the loose clothes and, you know, yeah, the yeah. man pajamas and stuff like that. But when I look back on that, I was like, that's who we were fighting, man. These like yeah. little scrawny, malnourished dudes out there with a couple of AKs and, a, and maybe a grenade or two and some IEDs and like man, and they did yeah. they did some good work. They yeah. did some work. Yeah, they I really think because they weren't wearing the combat diaper. That's I why. Say, yeah, that's yeah. was always. Like, I mean, like, you I know tried, you tried doing that. Yeah. It wasn't a popular opinion, but I know a couple people shared it. Was that if I'd given if it given me the option in Pandway to fight without with whatever I wanted, I I, I would have ditched my body armor. I would have ditched the helmet. Yeah. I would have ditched the diaper. Well, I might have kept the diaper actually after yeah, enough yeah. people got their 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 junk uh, injured. But you know, our enemy was so fast. You know, so and fast. the terrain that we were expected to to cover. What you know, you're climbing walls and you're you know you're swimming through canals and you're you're walking through grape rows and you're ducking under uh, orchards and you're in and out of these compounds. Like it's just you know for the risk like risk versus reward for me it's like you know if what's the likelihood i'm gonna get hit in the you know in the chest with a with a bullet in panjway it's like yeah. really really low um you know they didn't run around with armor you know no. <laughs> and uh, i mean just the know. heat alone yeah, I mean, the heat, yeah so i you know we've been to fort polk i've been to ntc i feel like i've been to some hot places but uh mm. there is nothing that compares to being in the middle of a grape row in the middle of summer in Panjway, yeah, there's yeah. this distinct 
feeling, smell, and heat <laughs> that is just painful and miserable. Because hmm. um, you're in an area that's supposed to be a dry heat, right? You know, yeah. This is this isn't is it's irrigated desert, so it's 120, it's 130 degrees out. But if you were in the desert, like up up in the reg, probably weren't that bad. You got a nice breeze. It's not yeah. humid. You know, it's mm. not comfortable. But then you dump into an orchard or a grape row. Now you have that humidity on top of that heat. Yeah. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure if there's any that, other I mean, place we... in the world where you can have that kind of heat yeah. and that kind of humidity. Like it's yeah. just brutal. Yeah, I think that goes back to conditioning. You know, we kind of talked about before we left how we felt um mm. if there's anything we did right it was we at least had the mindset that we were going to try to be the most physically fit uh, and i think what pangeway taught me was that combat's not only mentally hard but it, it's a, it you can't even prepare for the physical hardness yeah. of of combat dismounted and um we you yeah. know we saw that on one mission where you know we, we we had to evac a little bit early based off of some heat cats mm-hmm. uh, but it, it takes a toll uh and then again, you guys doing that for a full nine months, um, it ages the body yeah. very quickly. Hmm. Well, also, it also highlights a different kind of fitness that's required. I mean, because there's, yeah. there's different kind of fights, you know, in yeah. that fight, you know, you, I could see someone who was like, they were like 250 pound and built and they were, they're fine in Pandroid because it met their kind of like, you know, short burst of energy, climb a wall, short burst of energy, climb a wall. Yeah. Yeah. But the little dude who weighed 110 pounds, yeah. that's yeah. the thing for me. The guy who weighed 110 pounds can, and that could run a five-minute mile. Well, <laughs> he goes to Pantway. You put 100 pounds of shit on him, and he smoked. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Me, yeah. never a PT stud in terms of, like, <laughs> running and stuff. You know, I, I barely ran a 15-minute two-mile. Like, just barely <laughs> got under the, the radar for passing PT test. We go to Pantway, I can hump gear all day, All man. day, yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 And uh, and we saw all of it, right? We we drove places, we walked. Uh, it was a uh, it was a total total fight. Like I I think, you, not that I would wish Panjway on anybody, because um, even people you know before us have always talked about how bad it is. But uh, we truly got the full infantry experience mm-hmm. if you did a rotation through Panjway. We even got to climb a mountain, uh, like for <laughs> yeah. it not being a mountainous one. I got to climb a mountain in Panjway, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I, I forgot about uh, that one. Yeah, I carried a minehound on that. <laughs> no, no. What was the? No, sorry. I carried a duke on that one. I got so pissed at whoever was carrying the duke that I just strapped it myself, and then uh, I couldn't figure out why my radios didn't I, work. Yeah, not, so. not a good day for me. <laughs> well, that was because the person that gave that person the duke set him up for failure. Like he yeah. just like he like threw it into a backpack. Was like here you go, you're going on a mission last minute, and uh, yeah. that person was God, like not prepared. That. Like there's like yeah. this this thing is like hanging half off of me, and they're like, they weren't. I mean, they were. There were other issues there too, but uh, yeah, they were they were not set up for success. And then we get to the top yeah, of the no. mountain, and we freeze our asses off overnight, and then sun comes I'll up. And there's yeah, a, that was that was oh. such a strange. You know, I it goes back to that story we talked about in pre-interviews. Like you forget some missions yeah. and some stuff because it just every day. And I mm-hmm. I totally forgot about that. We were told to go up there and see what we could see. And if there's anything using the rat lines right. to the south of that. And I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> we were, yeah, we we were bored and we weren't getting shot at yet. Yeah. It was cold was too. Like, it was really cold. It was April. Yeah, It was yeah, freaking yeah. cold. I think I was like snuggling with somebody. I was like, this. as soon as the sun comes up, we're walking down yeah. and we're going to go eat some omelets from those yeah. sweet cooks. <laughs> yeah. That was probably a 1,500 foot elevation gain too, really. Uh, no, it wasn't. I don't think it was yeah. that severe. Uh, several hundred for sure yeah but yeah it wasn't as easy as i thought it was gonna no. be yeah uh, it was a lot easier yeah, to walk down when we saw that there was a path 
that we yes, didn't see when we true. went up. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for those outdated Dell phone imagery. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Man. Oh, man. I tell you, man, uh, like there's a couple things from Afghanistan that stick with me. One is what it's like, you know, in terms of the physical exhaustion and the physical aspect of it, like you were talking about, Yeah, is to do the old heft where you shift all your crap up onto mm-hmm. your back and bend over at the waist at 90 degrees so yeah. that you can give your shoulders and neck off. a yeah. rest. But yeah. when you do that, to have not just, you don't have sweat drip from your nose, but like a continual stream yeah, uh, sweat <laughs> comes off your nose. That's, yeah, that's always really specific. That kind of took yeah. me back. A yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> See, like already getting like that prickly heat burn. Yeah, your back. Man. Like, oh, man. but yeah. but the bend over like that uh-huh. to to alleviate weight, the stream of sweat, not not like a continuous yeah. stream, and then gloves, man. Oh, I still yeah. cannot like bring wiping, myself to wiping wearing your brow today. with gloves. Yeah. And just like wearing gloves today, I will not wear gloves unless I'm literally handing, handling something that I need to wear them. Yeah. Because if you know if it's if it's ten degrees outside, I will stick my hands in my pockets. I will not wear gloves because <laughs> when it's 120 degrees outside and you're already wearing long sleeves everywhere, and then you yeah. stick your fingers in freaking gloves, which are a necessity in yeah. combat. To be fair, to be fair, yeah, it's just like. God Almighty! Well, I think it just up. doesn't help that the gloves they give us, you know, they're they're basically flight gloves. They're not designed to be like inundated in sweat. Yeah. So mm. they're because they're 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 heat resistant. So like, but they they get clogged up with all that sweat, which yeah. ironically makes them not heat resistant anymore. Um, <laughs> and they just like they sticks so, like after after you a mission, you go you grab them and you just, you just like you have to like ring them out just to un like unlock their position. Otherwise, you're like sticking it and you're just, like. Ugh. <laughs> and then that's why we all bought aftermarket gloves which were not heat resistant but yeah, you, you very quickly understand the ergonomics of like why people care about gear yes yeah uh, yeah after you're like okay i i, I actually had to use this stuff so yeah. it was interesting uh, it to see over the point how people started right to buy stuff. things you know things started <laughs> showing up like like uh, rack systems gloves new boots the we had the um the knee pad pants the mm-hmm. the combat shirts like you know it's it's interesting by the end we look more like you know like we were outfitted like rangers and it's mostly on everybody's individual dime um i mean they did start yeah, issuing other than our the- third id patch you would never know we were from an armory unit <laughs> right <laughs> oh man yeah i mean it was uh yeah yeah i mean it, it definitely set set for me the importance of good gear and even to this day like i don't anything but like the stuff that i buy you know i buy good stuff and i i put a lot of thought into it because like why why would i buy a holster that is a piece of crap or why would i buy an optic that's a piece of crap and you know it burns a whole other conversation about what i would bring to panjway if i was doing it again um but (laughs) which is a futile conversation (laughs) it is because as we all know (laughs) some majors over there watching you on the p just being like why aren't your sleeves rolled down there high speed yeah 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 you you take a more aggressive stance well, that's I mean that's uh, that's another topic of the the changing army is the is the video game aspect or the uh, kill TV. I mean, you know, Chris, you you saw it I'm sure in 2020. I mean, you can log on to the secret net and you there's like it's like YouTube, it's like live YouTube yeah. for video feeds, and any yeah. sergeant major, any lieutenant colonel can get on there and be like, what are those guys doing? You know, or worse, a general. That's true. Um, and we've just kind of bred this culture where like macro management is is now possible and it's just mm. not a big fan of it but the uh 
given you know so you, you your two experiences um both you know in, in a position of, of leadership you know what what are your your personal thoughts on what's of the future panjway and how how things are going to work out for them i understood like this isn't the official position of the u.s government or anything yeah, like that. yeah. no i mean you know reflecting back of just devoted some of my life you know especially missing my kids births and stuff like that to afghanistan you know what was it personally for me um you know i'll start with the good i I think the good is that uh the afghan army as a whole is are getting the right leaders with the right mindset to to work towards security now where they're kind of paired up in a bad spot is just they're in districts or in provinces that don't want don't want their help um they want to be by themselves and 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 don't want the government or the version of the government to help them i think panjua is is going to be in a tough spot uh i think they're too important by being close to kandahar for the government of, of afghanistan to say hey go do your own thing and and be fine um but i think the more that uh we force them to to be part of a productive society in Kandahar, the, the, the angrier it's going to get, um, the Taliban who, who see it as a, as a bed down hangout spot, uh, that brings some economy to them with what they produce or what they can smuggle through it. And so I think they're always going to be torn, uh, of what we talked about very early, who their allegiance to. Um, and, and I don't know if, if a peace deal on paper is going to solve that. Because uh, because I think we would have seen that by now, right? Um, so that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, and I mean my my take, and I I don't have to filter it through uh, not speaking for the government because I don't I'm not in the, not in the military anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I think I think Afghanistan has always been a difficult place to control because Afghanistan doesn't have the boundaries that it should. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's very tribal. You have how many? What like 13, 14 different languages are spoken in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's it's very regionalized. And the South in particular has always been impossible to, to control. I mean, the Soviets never had a hand on Kandahar. They never did. We can at least say that we did for a brief time. Um, my, my suspicion is that, you know, we, we did do this Doha deal. There is a timeline for our, ex, uh, for our exit. And then if we don't abide by that exit, then I think that's just going to basically let the Taliban loose. And I, I would say you'd have the Taliban uh at the gate of of Kabul within a year um yeah. and i i don't i think you're right cuz my experiences in 2017 with ANA i was blown away i was like they're mm-hmm. they're flying their own aircraft they're running their own artillery they're doing their own clearing operations mm-hmm. like they're they're independent like they have their own air bases like they're doing a lot of stuff really well the problem is if we take away the supply chain that is us like we are their supply chain yeah. They they can't do it if they don't have the yeah. the fuel for the helicopters or the contract maintenance that we provide for the helicopters or you know all these number of things then their capabilities go way back and they're like well if we yeah. don't have the supplies we can't do it so I uh, my suspicion is we'll you'll see regions of Afghanistan that are extremely safe and secure you, Kabul coast um, probably Herat Farah. Uh, Mez, uh, Mazari Sharif, and then outside of that, probably just warlords and Taliban. And I don't know, it'll be probably back and forth like that for a couple decades. 
yeah, I definitely don't see, um, you know, this group of individuals taking a trip to, uh, to Spearmangar and, and being able to take our grandkid, grandkid and say, look, this is where, this is where we fought. I, yeah, if you look at it today, it looks a lot like it did 50 years ago, uh, just a little bit different faces. And I think it's going to be the same going forward. Uh, yeah, I think I think the only way that that happens is there's there's a radical upheaval in Afghanistan, where you have the re- like the remnants of the Karzai government that we built will have to be completely eradicated, and Afghanistan is going to have to figure it out on their own, without yeah. ours or Russian or Chinese interference. They're just going to have to figure out what works for them, and once they figure out what works for them on their own, maybe it is. Maybe in fifty years we can go back, but I think as long as it's yeah, I'm not. I'm not counting on it. I'm not counting <laughs> I'm not on either. it. And I'm not going on there no until an engineer not. battalion has been crawl over all over that place looking yeah. for IEDs. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Roll out a red carpet that's been. Yeah, I'm totally fine with that. Check. Yeah, as as um, the celebrities at the Panjoy podcast return to you know, <laughs> Afghanistan, roll out the red carpet. See? You know, have the band going. I'd be okay mm-hmm. with that. You have that's a fine. goat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll roast up a goat. It'll be good. Good times. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, Chris, um, we kind of usually close these things out with a opportunity for you to, uh, to cover anything we've missed, um, or just to say whatever's on your mind, kind of like this, like your soapbox moment. If there's anything you want to say, it's all you. All right. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, I think the, the biggest takeaway from, from our experience in Panjway is, uh, if you're able to look at each unit that was there. Uh, there's a common denominator, right? So it was uh, a terrible fight, a hardened enemy, uh, but a group of individuals that were worried about each other and about getting home. Uh, and I think that has stuck with me for so many years going forward of just the the collectiveness of the you know the power of U.S. soldiers um, in in any environment, and so. Uh, I think this, this podcast has been a phenomenal, uh, kind of rebluing of, of our love to our country and then also to each other. Um, and it's a great experience and it's something that I, I will take with me. So Panjoy will, will never leave, uh, my mindset. Um, but the further we get away from it, the the more I focused on the positive aspects of it and less yeah. of the, uh, yeah. the negative side of, of losing people or, or seeing some, some bad stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, and sure. it's, uh. And it's a goal of ours, you know, aside from the book, that when this is all, all said and done, that we'll do like a, a, you know, a box set or something like that, that everybody can go and they can, they can put it on the shelf and be like, you know, that's, that's our history. You know, that's, that's what we experienced. Yeah. That's what others experienced. And, um, you know, you, the, the landscape itself, I mean, I think you don't find very often in history where a group of soldiers um, from multiple countries have such a affinity for an area. Um, yeah. You have a little bit of it with like, you know, Kunar and Korangal. Um, but I think the connection for a lot of the, the Canadian and American forces in, in Panjway is unique in that we have a connection to each other and what we experience together. But there's also just kind of this weird connection to the land. And um, yeah, well, I don't think it's, we're going to be able to, to take our grandkids there one day. I hope that actually is a, a possibility, but um, Chris, I, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. It's, it means a lot to us, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to be able to have you and Matt and Brian and all these guys come on and, and sit down with us, uh, and talk about this experience because it's, a uh, 
offers a lot of insight and perspective that we wouldn't have been privy to or right. that, that Curtis and I have no authority or grounds to speak towards. Right. So that's really valuable for, for us and for the objective here. So we appreciate you coming on for sure. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's been it's been uh it's been a great privilege. And then, you know, it's it's like side for us as well, right? So I think often we like to act like we know what the lowest levels are feeling, but um, it's good to see that, you know, some things made it and other things maybe didn't make it as we went through the phone tree. But yeah. thanks again for having, letting me have the opportunity to, to reconnect with you guys and hang out for a bit. Yeah, yeah of course, sure. man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pandroid Podcast. If you liked what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. New episodes every Monday on all major podcast platforms, Facebook, and YouTube. Visit www.thepandwaypodcast.com for more information.